0: to the Good Money Pods, hosted by myself, Ryan, and Bruce Pritchard. Uh, we cover the, the path to building scalable industry-defining startups, which, as you all know, can be a long and winding road, my friends, which is why we're super excited to be building this, this show, specifically for founders, CFOs, and business mm-hmm. leaders, anybody that's out there uh, that's looking for answers. Uh, so we're really focused on getting under the skin of some of the great minds that are out there. Uh, and really trying to understand what it is that they've managed to implement and how they've gone about that journey themselves in terms of the world of work. So today I am super excited to be sitting down virtually with the one and only Phil Halbish, uh CFO of Who Gives a Crap. Apparently good for your bum and great for the world. 100% bamboo and recycled toilet paper. With 50% of the profits donated to help business build toilets around the world. There we go. That's the the snippet that I took away. Anyway, mate, how's it all going?
1: Uh, it's going well. Um, great introduction. Enjoyed it already. It's um, no, it's fun. I um, you know, couldn't be more excited to be at Who Gives a Crap. It's a uh, it's just a great company full of great people trying to do great things. So I'm uh, you know, got the sleeves rolled up and and sinking my teeth into all the things that you need to do as a first-time CFO in the, in the scale-up business. I can only imagine you've got your hands full. So for those that don't
0: know, uh, who gives a crap? Uh, closed its first VC cap raise last year, which was a whopping $41.5 million, uh, which is uh, incredible, incredibly significant milestone, I should say, uh, given you guys launched in 2012. And aside from Bootstrap and the only external funding to get the operations off the ground, Uh, initially came from your founder, Simon Griffith, launching a crowdfunding campaign uh, on Indiegogo, seen him perched on a toilet for no less than 50 hours until you'd hit the minimum fundraise commitment. Uh, That's commitment in its own right right there. And today, uh, Who Gives a Crap have made over $20 million in profits and donated half of this to non-profit partners that are working on clean water and sanitation projects around the world which is just amazing to hear and see um, simon the ceo and one of the founders has been incredibly vocal around how uh, you need to achieve billions of dollars in donations if you are to achieve your goal of helping two billion people get access to adequate sanitation around the world um, and then just i guess kind of looking off late aside from launching internationally one of the other key uh, key things that has been going on with the team is, you know, it's, it's definitely kind of focused on um, bringing in what would look like the scale-up team, um, you know, for those of us looking at it from the outside, which includes your good self Phil. So just as
1: a bit of background, how long ago did you join uh, Who Gives a Crap? So I joined in November after a pretty extensive interview process, which was kind of gives you, I think it took three months or so, gives you you know, huge amounts of confidence that you're stepping into the right place, to be honest. Um, I pretty much felt like I met everyone and, and spoke to them all. It's, um, and then it's been four and a bit months now. So feel like I've been one of those things that you always get. I, I feel like I've been there for a long time and, and a short time at the same time. So it's, uh, it's uh, definitely a rocket ship and um, I'm, I'm hanging on at the moment, but uh, enjoying every minute. And what a rocket ship you're all building.
0: I genuinely love seeing companies with such a strong mission and social conscience, as who gives a crap, come through and thrive. It is interesting though. Uh, you know, three months might sound like a lifetime for most startups, but it's but it's really not. You know, we'll have to delve into that um, in, in terms of the actual process a little bit later on. I do just find that the path to making C-suite hires can be full of trepidation. Um, but from an org design perspective, when you're up, uh, you, you've got to be planning one or two years in advance. You know, and given the seniority and wealth of experience that you're looking for, you need to factor in a longer hiring phase as there's just fewer people with the right skill sets that actually exist. And that's not to forget that people have longer notice periods, Yeah, the, the more senior that they are. Um, and also, you know, just looking at it, you're going to be spending a much longer period of time getting to know the individual than, say, an entry or mid-level managerial role. Uh, So, yeah, uh, looking at that situation, I assume finding people who've led companies through similar challenges uh, as those uh, that the Who Gives a Crap team would be facing as you scale internationally would have been imperative uh, for, for Simon and the rest. Uh, just in terms of yourself, though, Phil, um, where did the CFO journey all begin for you?
1: Yeah, a few things. So about 10 years ago, I stepped out of News Corp, um, had a really good job there, and was, it was very well looked after by that organization into a small startup called Global Corporate Challenge, which was Melbourne headquartered as well. I believe you're in Sydney, but um, we're down in Melbourne. And um was first time CFO in there, taking over the finances from um, the CEO, who was very astute with his numbers, but probably needed to go off and run the business, and needed someone to take care of the finances. So that was a, that was a little while ago now, but had an amazing experience there, and then stepped into Tribe in the same gig. Actually, they hadn't had a CFO before, so when I saw first time CFO growth journey Melbourne startup, it kind of just rang a whole lot of bells in the head. And you know, I really wanted to live the the global corporate challenge version Pulse journey again, and then honestly, true story that I'll tell a million times and bore everyone with when the who gives a crap job description came out, I I, I shot it to a friend on WhatsApp or whatever it was and just said, oh my God, this is like the job I should be doing. Amazing company, amazing purpose. Look at what they need. Like I can do this. Like I really should get myself in there and amazingly and, and very fortunately I did. And the rest, as they say, is history.
0: Yeah, just looking back in those early stages, you really need to just fill the gaps across the board to drive uh, your your startup, your scale up uh, growth to the next stage, uh, which includes more times than not, you know, the CEO being a finance team of one until they're ready for their first uh, CFO, FD, uh, financial controller, whatever else it might be. Um, but yeah, like you know, adding in the complexities. Of building a global company such as who gives a crap it it reinforces the need for hiring people that are gonna come in with a fresh set of eyes to question the problems and barriers you'll be faced with in different geographies that you're aspiring to operate within um just back to that kind of interview process and i guess kind of whether pushing and looking just for the fit kind of side of things uh, what did it actually look like? You know, again, the kind of the the time in who you met, everything else.
1: Yeah, all good questions. I just realised I didn't ask, answer your last one. So yeah, it was a, it was a three month interview process, and good on them for doing it. Like it's a it's an important role coming into the executive role. You know, the, their executive has been together a long time. So they need to make sure they could find someone that they could work with and collaborate with um, who held the same values as they did to a large extent. But also from a style uh, point of view, I think, um, was really important being able to converse with them and have their ear when you needed to. And, and also be able to listen to them because um, they're obviously very knowledgeable and they're running a really good business. But yeah, I kinda, the, I think the interview process was about three months and then I was on three months notice. So it took me about six months to get there which Is pretty cool talking from first hand experience. I think
0: it's so so important, uh, to really get to know someone before you commit to bring them into uh, the team. You know, n- not a, more important than someone in your C suite, such as a first time CFO. Uh, I think what tends to catch people off is that there's typically less formal processes in terms of rounds of interviews, as you're more typically looking for someone who can sit by your side to lead the company. Uh, it hence it's it's really about ensuring that the relationship works and gels for all parties. know, I look back to when we've hired our now CFO and COO or CPMO or CTO. I've always had a number of informal chats about how they tackle certain challenges we were facing. As I was keen to see how they uh, actually saw the world and if it was drastically different to us, um, I guess we were quite unique in that a number of, um, in fact, all the C-suite, actually, uh, all of the, the senior execs, you know, they've started off really as advisors over a period of time before we've actually taken the plunge and moved them on uh, across to becoming a full-time employee um yeah just re-engineering those timelines uh, looking back yeah it was pretty much this time last year then uh, just before the second major lockdowns. That you kicked off the the kind of interview, uh, kind of and the hiring process with who gives a credit April May I think somewhere around there yeah cool uh, three month interview process um, and then met the founders met the team H- how big I just out of just how
1: big and mature was the finance function at that point um, in time? so the finance function wasn't big and it was quite mature they were. Um, only an internal team of four that was then using some external service providers, which we still do for transactional processing. So really interesting going through this process with them. The interview process was focused on the executive level. So I met all the founders. I met the executives. Um, there was a homework assignment and, and other things. And it was, you know, when you look back on it, it was a little bit stressful uh, <laughs> to be honest, but um, it was also you know, super reassuring that they were doing everything they possibly could to find the person who was going to work best with them. So it does give a lot of confidence that um, I was able to get through. A little bit of, provides a little bit of expectation as well that I better um, put my money where my mouth is in that interview process. But um, it's an exciting place to be. And, and, you know, one of the big things we're doing with finance at the moment is, you know, they've been, the, the internal finance resources have been working very hard for very long in a you know, do everything style um, way, and and we're really looking to support them and and get them a little bit away from that transactional processing that can happen when you grow so fast through a pandemic. I mean, no one could have ever predicted what it would be like, and and now sort of you know get get getting them to get their hands on on the work that finance teams want to be doing, and and set up processes and systems around them and people that can make sure that, that we become better, but um, become better in a really sustainable way. So true. It's been some roller coaster, uh, none
0: more so than for those having to oversee the purse strings uh, through this uh, pretty unpredictable period, right? So I'd I'd take my hat off to everyone out there that's had to contend with this uh, juxtaposition of the maintenance of your corporations of, you know, the, the run the business functions versus the capital intensive requirements involved with the building a business part to transform yourself into a scale-up and when we're talking to other CFOs that's the part of the journey where we typically hear about them needing to get granular with carrying out some variance analysis on what budgets they have or sometimes haven't set aside for both the run the business and change the business elements and then seeing how far off these budgets are tracking versus the actuals month by month, line item by line item so that they can start managing the burn rate and optimising their forecasts for adjustments that are actually needed. Um, what's, uh, what's been the biggest pain point you've found as you've joined the team over there, Phil, and have you gone about tackling it out of interest?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's time, really. You can get so bogged down in transactional tasks as you grow. And I saw I, I saw an awesome graphic the other day, and I don't know if it was yours, but if it was, well done. Sort of someone had wedged a stage called grow up in between startup and scale up. And and that's really part of it. The team was doing so much work because they were growing so fast, but it wasn't really having the opportunity to add value to the rest of the business because there were so many purchases to take care of and so many reconciliations to do through the bank and so many you know, bills to pay and and, you know, manufacturers to set terms with and do all those kind of things that you don't really ever get to sit back and look at your numbers in a meaningful way because you're so busy just making sure that the the clock keeps ticking and the machine keeps working. And that's really sort of one of the interesting things that we're we're going through at who gives a crack at the moment is, you know, we've got really capable, smart, intelligent people who have more to give and, and how do we set up systems and processes and people around them so we actually get that from them as we enter this next phase. As a startup, and
0: not to speak for others, but I feel like we rightly emphasize, uh, maybe overemphasize, on getting things done and moving quickly. You know, One of the key challenges is how do you go about initiating change in your company? You know, I was talking to a, a doctor friend recently on this and if I could draw a, a parallel um yeah you know, it's it's kind of a little like the initial triage that they go through you know they need to undertake with patients you know they first uh, assess physical conditions of the patient you know is it a heart attack or is it mild case of indigestion that they might be suffering from you know from a cfo's perspective yeah you know, it feels like you really a need to help gauge what level of buy-in is going to be needed to overcome whatever issue you're facing across those people, processes, and systems of pillars as you talk about. If it's a heart attack size problem, for example, you need urgent action, and you have gotta get everything focused on fixing it right now. Uh, If it's some mild ingestion, then you may be able to move a little bit slower. Maybe you should be moving a little bit slower in that case. And actual, it's all about gradual incremental changes. So for a lot of uh yeah, startups and scale-ups we get speaking to, it's it's typically focused around how they yeah don't have uh accounting systems in place and having a clear process to send invoices to their customers to get paid, which leaves them with major cash flow issues. Without cash, obviously, as you know, you can't pay your vendors, so uh, they for sure won't be happy about that. You'll then have also unhappy customers as they won't know how much they might owe you. Uh, and then that's not to mention a board that's unhappy because they have to you know, uh, look at reports or can't get access immediately to um, the reports or financials that they might want on a timely manner uh, to understand how the company's actually doing. So when it comes to um, your finance team at Who Gives a Crap, what have you got them focused on? And how do you go about that prioritization framework, the triaging, if you may?
1: Um yeah, look, it's interesting. It's um we like we've got a business to run, which I think is always the thing, and we're not a large team, so we've got to think about how we go about this in a in a way that's quite systematic. Like you just can't go and implement new systems and train everyone and pay all your bills and, and collect all your, your your dollars at the same time. And and so you know, what we're trying to do is really sort of work our way through it. And I, 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 I recall the conversations we had, you know, at the time that you first landed in Australia. Um, and congratulations for you arriving here. You chose Sydney. Could have chosen Melbourne. Um, but anyway, I'll forgive you. Never for no, say never. Yeah. But, but I mean, yeah, forgive me. Sorry. Oh, well. well, I love Bondi, so we can um, we can head up there one day and catch up. But um, the biggest thing I've learned in my, in my journey in startups is you can't do everything on your list. It just doesn't exist because the business is growing. There are different people, you know, coming into the organization. There's expansion into new regions and geographies. And, and so, you know, you could write the longest list of you, that you'd like, but you've actually just got to do the things that matter and, and do the things that are really important and then they're going to resonate with your business. So what, what I'm really focused on at the moment is people, system and process. Really. It's, yeah. am I, you know, I love running entrepreneurial finance departments they're hard to build only only in terms of the fact that it takes time but once once you can start getting people actually supporting the business and they look at their effort and they see how it's actually helped and working in businesses that have purpose like a who gives a crap or like a global corporate challenge where you know you know that every good job you do is changing lives it actually becomes quite easy from a motivational factor point of view it's more to grunt and and rolling up your sleeves and one thing that we've talked about is there's no one system fits all anymore. It's what's going to work best for you and your business given your culture, your values, and, and your ways of working. And so a lot of my time has been evaluating what I need from a systems point of view and, and what I need from a people point of view and what I need from a process point of view and, and then trying to make really good, sound decisions around that and getting you know the executive and the senior leadership of the business on board. Yeah, as a starter,
0: and uh, not to speak for others, but I feel like we rightly emphasize on getting things done uh, and moving quickly. And one of the key challenges is how do you go about initiating that type of change to get things done and to move quickly though a new company? And not necessarily the first profession you'd think of when you compare you know, startup processes to others, but the medical world has a lot of parallels to what we see. You know, I was recently catching up with a doctor friend who was, explain to me how the triage process works with patients, uh, which involves them first assessing the physical conditions of the patient, they're trying to understand before any resources are committed to this ailment request from the patient as to whether it's something super severe like a heart attack, or whether it's just a mild case of indigestion that they're suffering from. And again, drawing the parallels back to our world and that the CFO's perspective, it feels like one of the biggest things you need to gauge as part of that initial triage and process, just to add some extra complexity to it, is what level of buy-in you know, is gonna be needed to overcome whatever issue it is that you're facing. You know, when you're tackling those, as you talk about the pillars, you know, people, processes and systems. You know, if it's a heart attack size problem, for example, you need to take urgent action and you've got to get everything focused on fixing it straight away. If it's some mild indigestion, then you may be able to move a little bit slower. Maybe you should be moving a little bit slower, for that matter, and carrying out gradual incremental changes. Yeah. And whether it's just looking at things, whether it's an inability to set up spending guardrails so your team can't make purchases outside of your expense policy, or proactively cutting out wasteful spending associated with duplicate overlapping and orphan subscriptions you know, to help you uh, strengthen your cash flow, you need to decide where those priorities sit for your company. Uh, wh- when it comes to uh, your finance team, uh, uh, who gives a crap, what have you got them focused on and how do you go about that prioritisation framework out of interest, Bill?
1: Um, look, we're, we're, um, we're prioritising probably ERP and business intelligence, first and foremost, we're on zero, which is a great product, but from a consolidation point of view and as we globally expand across you know different geographies, we, we need to be more a little bit more coordinated with no disrespect to zero whatsoever. so um, and then we've got to work out how we actually can put that in, into play and then is that the most important priority or is business intelligence and actually knowing our numbers and being able to provide the business with um, the information they need to guide themselves. Into the next financial year to, to maximize our impact and, and through our you know our donation or you know um, our business performance because you know we're growing we're ambitious and and we'd like to do more and, and make more change so you know the thing that finance has to do and and this is kind of definitely not my own unique idea it's something that I was taught very early on through my experience at Tabcorp and then at News Corp as well is you know how can finance partner with, with the business to make better decisions and be more entrepreneurial and see opportunities and capitalise on them or see risks and minimise them as early as you possibly can. So in, in, in terms of stack ranking things, I think that, you know, we need to get comfortable around our numbers. We need to, you know, close the books earlier. We need to get some good processes in, in place. We need to support our existing people with probably some more. And then once we get those in place, then we can really start to look at that kind of, I, I mean, terms that I don't really like, business partnering, value add style things that, you know, I really more think about it, not as add-ons. I think about them as what you should be doing as a finance function in the first place. If you're, as you would know, and congratulations on on your successful raise and, and, you know, the excitement around Kate. Yes, man. Like, you, you can't wait and you can't leave it behind. So... You know, having that financial insight as early as you possibly can and and building your bench strength within finance to be able to support the rest of the business is really important.
0: I'm 100% behind that
1: point on the need
0: to build your bench strength in the finance team whilst also building from the ground up how you go about prioritising the automation of tasks and the roles from as early on as possible. And I, I do get the whole cringe element when it comes to at the you know somewhat overuse of business partnering or uh, the other one I think I was here is a uh, change agents. But I think it's helpful to see the finance team as as advisors to everyone else so that you know that they, the, the colleagues are ultimately looked at as their customers. You know? And then also so that you're hiring people who don't just know the you know the finance basics are also able to empathise with others, uh, and who view their role as helping the people, the team, you know, that they work with, as their primary goal. You know, that's something that's just essential. Uh, I think if you're able to build a team, yeah, you know, a finance team that's got it within their skill set, as not just to run the business, but also to change the business, to to add strategic value to initiatives. Yeah, and the, you know, how they go about tackling problems from uh, ideally as early as possible, uh, then it's only going to be able to help you as you face the various challenges in front of you, as you scale, you know, your customer base, you expand your product, product capabilities, and you, you grow your global footprint. Uh, out of interest, built from a workforce perspective, what does your global footprint actually look like? I'm assuming I'm, I'm preaching to the convert here about all of this.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, we I think we just tipped over 170 people. We're in a few different countries and, you know, it, it does. I think we've got eight different payrolls. So it does create its challenges. I think that one of the things that quite often gets missed, and this is only my opinion, is that you can have people trying to do everything. I had a really strong mentor at News Corp when I was there and obviously I was only looking after Victoria, but, You know, he had great international experience and he, you know, he was quite focused in terms of, you know, compliance is a non-negotiable, like you don't want to not pay your people correctly and so get people in who can do it for you and, you know, lodge everything on time and do this and do that and that's something that I've always sort of been a a fairly firm belief and then have people who don't need to worry about that so they can then go and support the business in terms of forward-looking decisions and strategic initiatives and measurement of the things you're trying to achieve but it's kind of a a really cool thing that organizations regardless of where they're based in the world can leverage and employ resources in countries that they never would have expected to you know five ten years ago I I know at at Virgin because I was really close to it we had a significant workforce in Bosnia and they were awesome it's you know they're all university qualified and they're all looking for work and there just wasn't the the commerce in, in that country to provide them all with jobs. But once we started looking at that and, and spinning it up, it, it became, you know, very successful very quickly. And then I think that some of the marketing work went to Romania and, you know, from a who gives a crap point of view, we've got people in the Philippines and in Europe and in Ireland, the UK, US and Australia, plus all our, our all our partners across the globe in other regions through, through Asia and Scandinavia. So it's from a CFO point of view, you've just got to be, cognizant of the fact that these are the things that you're going to need to deal with and they need your attention to set them up right the first time and so they then become not less of a headache less of a burden in terms of, of, of the stresses they play from the team and there are organizations now who do do, do it pretty well from a from a helping you out at that point of view and when you get to the size and scale that you you feel like you're comfortable with then you then you bring it in-house and get the expertise to come in-house
0: yeah there's just so much to contend with when it comes to the difficulties with finding top technology talent, you also need to be mindful of maintaining your culture. yeah, you know, And that's also across various time zones, which is a major challenge in itself as you've got to be cognizant of embracing local differences and the nuances you know, with them and consider all of the employment challenges from drafting the actual contracts and dealing with the Local employment lawyers, um, the journey to tackling uh, taxes, both for you and uh, the employee, and across to helping choose benefit packages that are in line with whatever the market norm is at that particular point in time, uh, which is you know, might be important for things like, for example, like healthcare, but it varies everywhere around the world. You know, it's a it's a considerable undertaking for anyone any. CFO any business so just um, thinking about all of that what's the what's the actual tipping point to actually look at an offshore hub of some sort or outsourcing so whether that might be your your back office operations your general customer support customer care or whether it's uh, looking at the engineering side yeah just from your experience what's the what's the point where you think in terms of the I don't know whether it's the headcount size that you're at in terms of the scale up or whether it's the milestones within a business that it's met, that you just go, you know, actually now might be the time to start considering setting something up over in the Philippines, over
1: in India, over in Portugal. What is that? From a headcount point of view, I think once you're over 100, you start to get to a decent size. But alternatively, compliance is a really big consideration. Like If you're spread too wide and too thin and you've got, say, 15 countries that you need to be compliant in, but you don't have, sort of the wealth of headcount in those countries. But you I mean, it doesn't matter if you've got one employee or 25, the one employee means you're going to need to do all your registrations, you going to need to, to you know, comply with all the local laws and regulations and all those kind of things. And I think that if you get into that point, then you've got to have a look at whether there's a benefit to to that or whether you're better off centralizing your resources into, you know, one place and making it a more significant center of excellence, which I think is a term that most people prefer to to choose. We've got more employees under one regulatory environment, which actually kind of makes it easier to manage rather than having small numbers of employees in many different regulatory environments. I think that's one really big part. And then the other thing that I would say to this that that I think is really important and sometimes get missed is... Once, once you do that, you lose sight of some things and you've got to be in the position where you're comfortable that you're either not going to lose sight of them or they're things that it's okay to lose sight of because they're not under your nose, they're not in your team, in your team, they're not easily contactable and they work in a different way. And so if they're doing things that are important to your business from a decision-making point of view, but you don't have line of sight or visibility on that, then you've just got to be really aware of of what you are gaining from that from a cost-benefit point of view from what you might potentially be losing from having the ability to access their work in a a real-time manner to make decisions. So given we're today celebrating
0: World Earth Day, the one thing I really wanted to talk to you about with the Who Gives a Crap journey is your B Corp status. My first exposure to uh, I guess i say the B Corp movement, but B Corp was when I was reading uh, Yvonne Schooner's Let My People Go Surfing book. Um, he's the founder of the apparel and clothing company Patagonia, and he tells this just amazing story of a reluctant entrepreneur that ultimately is solely in business with the focus of doing good for the world. I highly recommend if you've not seen it. Um, Or read it, I should say, seen it, read it. Um, For some context, just uh, for audience, uh, the B Corp program was actually set up back in 2006 uh, with the goal of establishing a blueprint for all types of businesses, from the teeny-weeny to the gigantic, to assess their environmental and social impact. So there's roughly... Four thousand eight hundred companies around the world that have gone through the uh, what we call their business impact assessment process uh, and have been officially certified by the B Lab, um, with four hundred of those actually in Australia alone. So we're, we're definitely punching above our weight when it comes to the world stage, given uh, our two point three million SMEs that we've got here. Uh, but to become certified. You need to go through the uh, that B-Lab Impact Assessment, uh, which uh, looks at five uh, different pillars across, well, starting with your customer base and how your business model impacts them as well as uh, looking at minority communities as well that you, you support. Uh, then looking across at your employees, their working environment, uh, the compensation strategies that you roll out, as well as the training programs and benefit packages that you put together, the overall governance of your business, you know, your mission and how you uphold that, uh, that transparency for everybody else, um, the external community forth, you know, yeah, that you work with uh, and impact, so such as your suppliers, your vendors. Uh, and then last but not least, the environmental impact of your business and how specifically you're going about measuring reducing and reporting on your environmental impact now when it comes to who gives a crap how have you found the process for the finance function
1: specifically in supporting that b corp status look i mean being a b corp is really important to us and and there are obligations to it you you get recertified at different periods of time and, and it takes some work internally but i think that the benefits far outweigh the burden of that work, and, and it's really important to us as an organisation that we are a B Corp and 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 hold ourselves to those standards. Um, I can't take any credit for it. You know, our legal team and and some of you know the great people in in my own team and some other teams take care of those kind of things. But um, you know, it, it, it's been a great initiative from the founders from the start, and you know, it really ties into the rest of the businesses, you know, desires and and, and motivations to you know to serve the the global community you know in a, in a way that's really meaningful so it's um i always get a bit surprised by the fact when you think about penicillin and all those kind of things but um you know toilets have saved more lives than any other modern invention and so you know that that importance of clean water and and you know correct sanitation facilities and all those kind of things in in impoverished communities and and, and areas which we help is is huge and it's from my from my point of view, and 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 you know, one of the reasons why I'm there, but also you know, relates a little bit back to my global corporate challenge days in terms of trying to help people live healthier lives as employees of, of corporations. It's nice to wake up in the morning to work for who gives a crap, and and know that all your, all your efforts and and everything you've learned over time is you know, your skills are being put to a good purpose, and the 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 impact and sustainability of what we do is. At the forefront of everyone's thinking on a daily basis. That's just fantastic
0: to hear. I think not just every CFO, but every startup leader needs to be able to explain how their company makes the world a better place, right? What we're starting to see is that the clearer that the purpose is, the more talent and investment you will attract. Yeah, you know, seen a study from Boston Consulting Group highlighting data uh, that shows Leaders that are aligned around a well-articulated purpose are twice as likely to achieve above average shareholder returns. Not only that, but a purpose which goes beyond profits is like proven to be a magnet for top employees. Companies with clear purpose report 40% higher levels of workforce retention than their nearest competitors. So building a company only to make its leaders and investors wealthy just won't cut anymore you've got to pay your employees in a currency that they actually value. And that currency is is meaning. I heard someone um, once refer to it as the granny test, which is, this is on the meaning point, but this is uh, a basic test as to whether any colleague across uh, your business could talk to their nan over a Sunday afternoon, cup of coffee, cup of tea, uh, and get them excited as to why they work in your startup. Um, If your purpose is compelling enough, then they'll be able to tell in simple words why it's so valuable for you to get up every morning to work on that mission. And yeah, I think that's it's something that we all need to think about as to how do we bake that into as leads, how do we bake that into um, the business from as early as possible. Oh,
1: it is for sure. And um, look, you know, it's not shoved down our throats. It's just there every day. And obviously, we talk about it as the reason that that we exist and and whatnot. But it's more you know, a lot of say what I do and, and the way it comes into the, my daily way of working is, you know, a lot of the decisions I need to make from a financial perspective, how does this impact the bottom line and how does it impact the our ability to make a donation to our impact partners every year? Um, how predictable is that donation so they can plan ahead and and, and how sustainable you know are our efforts in, in terms of what we're doing. And it's um it's it's important stuff um that you get to interact with every day. That uh, we you know we take really really seriously, but we're also hugely supported by the impact partners we select, and you know we've got a great head of impact in in, in Robin, who does a huge amount of work on our behalf, and to make sure that we we are having an impact. And then also obviously it's from the founders and 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 the people within the business. It's it's something that you know re- really resonates through the business, almost just as something that's there without it being necessarily needed to be called out on a daily basis so you know it does it does hold a very important place in the way we think about things on a on a day-to-day nice Uh, question for you how many toilets how many toilets do we need how many toilets does the does the world need right now what's the size of the the target that we're aiming for um it's pretty big and the reason i know it's pretty big is that our big hairy audacious goal is for everyone to have access to a toilet by 2050 so that's 28 years away. So it's going to take some work. So there's a few million that are re- required. And so we need, we need to build our business and we're not going to do it on our own either. Obviously, um, there's lots of amazing organizations working towards this as well. So, you know, we're, we're very happy to be a part of that journey, but you know, there are many, many people without proper sanitation facilities. And, and it's not just about the physical toilet, so to speak. It's about the waste that goes into waterways. Um, that then contaminates those waterways and means that people aren't getting you know clean clean water and those kind of things i'm I'm definitely not the person to speak like an expert on this trust me um I'm learning as fast as I can go but uh, yeah it's a it's a very noble cause and and one that we're very proud of and you know as a part of this collective of of different organizations that are trying to make a difference on this, um we think we can totally different ends of the spectrum but with La
0: Nina, uh, the weather pattern we've had over the East Coast of late, it's created one of the wettest summers on record. And that heavy rainfall has actually sent uh, stormwater, which includes uh, raw sewage and other nasty and treated chemicals, directly into the oceans, and with it, creating high concentrations of E. coli. And fortunately, as you know, we're an ocean-loving bunch. As to you know whether that means getting out. For a surf, a swim, an nosy parker with some snorkeling maybe, who knows. Uh, but that is not a great recipe and has actually caused considerable health issues um, with the local, local population. So yeah, if it can happen here, yeah, it can happen anywhere, uh, let alone in the developing world, which is far more severe and urgent to fix, just to be clear. Um, just one other question when it comes to tying all of this together so you mentioned about having a head of impact on board um i think it was robin was was she in uh on a perm basis was she an advisor contract role and also how does it look from a racy perspective just in terms of her uh, responsibilities and accountabilities and all that stuff
1: yeah look i think that um speaking about Robin specifically it was a role that was created within the organization because we had impact partners that were doing their great work in in the wash space but needed coordination they needed selection we needed to understand the impact of what they were doing so to have someone like super passionate very knowledgeable and experienced in this space um come into our organization and do it full time was something that the team decided was a good decision, and, and you know it, it certainly has turned out to be that way. So, Robin's not a consultant; she's an um, employee of ours, and she does a tremendous job working with our impact partners, with Danny as well, one of our founders, who's head of product and purpose, and and everyone else who you know gets their energy behind it. And um, if we are going to make an impact, and if we are going to work really well to to maximize the benefit of the work that we're doing. You know, having someone like Robin in our organisation just makes us better. It also gives us a lot of insight into the work that happens because she's very articulate in the way she goes about things. And, you know, also it, it creates a great linkage between your work you're doing every day and the impact that's having by having someone who can sit there and tell you what it's actually doing. It's, um, it is it is quite meaningful. And I think that, you know, it's not, it's not always easy to hire these roles and make a decision... On say, you know, talking really financially, like a, a non-revenue generating role, but from a, a cultural standpoint, and from, I mean, even a, a daily motivational standpoint and a meaning standpoint to to our teams, knowing that the business is invested in someone who makes sure that we're doing the best job we possibly can in this area is really important to you know all our people and 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 what we stand for as a business.
0: Yeah, and it, you know, it's it is
1: interesting because I mean, we, we're doing lot all- we're doing quite a lot of
0: research work uh, internally right now. Aspirationally, we want to be a B Corp. We all are absolutely behind that and we've got a couple of different initiatives that we're looking at. But it is interesting because, you know, I think there are lots of commercial positives that you can look at in terms of going down that, in terms of doing the right thing, uh, especially in terms of point differentiation. I'd say, I mean, one thing I'd be kind of intrigued by because you guys went down that path quite early on. Had you found that that had because you guys have got such a strong position in the market that it's helped support both the customer acquisition, uh, so word of mouth, that side of things, but also you know, the, the price point in terms of the product itself because yeah, TP, right? We all need TP. So it's a, it's a commodity product. And you know the, there are some players that have been uh, here for obviously a long period of time. There isn't a lot of innovation that's actually happened in that space. So it, it then kind of comes down to for something which is so essential on a daily basis. How do you differentiate and justify a different price point?
1: Yeah, And, yeah, I guess, the, sorry. Yeah. Um, look, it's a, good, it's a great question. And, I mean, you know, I'll put it in the context of what you're trying to do first in, in terms of I don't think there will be very many industry players in your industry that are looking to, towards B Corp accreditation. Because it's you know it's it's a traditional industry that's been led by the few rather than the many and um, is now starting to be disrupted from 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 our point of view I mean the B Corp status happened well before my time so I can't comment on the motivations of it to any great extent but I know it's held in very high regard um, within our own organisation and and I think that you know we're seeing generational change in purchasing decisions and I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on consumer behavior whatsoever. But talking to my peers and and, you know, my friends and all those kind of things, people want to make people want to make good decisions in their daily purchases. And having sustainable toilet paper is just one of those many decisions that they are able to make if they if they choose to make it. It's um, you know, we had we've had free trade coffee and and all sorts of kind of things come in at a different differing price points to the to the mass manufacturers. But they've been able to take hold of society because society has made a decision that they actually want to be a part of a sustainable, impactful investment decision when they buy their everyday products as opposed to potentially something that isn't as good for society or isn't as good for the environment. And You know, I was I was very fortunate when I was at Virgin to get access into, you know, their purpose team and, and single-use plastics was huge. You know, they were eliminated from every office that we had. Um, and I'm sure even broader than that because they were just not something that that organisation wanted to be a part of. So I think those kind of movements, for lack of a better term, or those kind of sort of ways of thinking about your daily impact on the globe, and, and, you know, you mentioned global warming and you mentioned manly and all those kind of things, and, you know, you think about, you know, sanitation and health and wellbeing, it's quite confronting when it can happen in your own backyard just as much as it can happen in places that don't have the infrastructures to support good sanitation and good hygiene and and we need to be aware of that as a you know as as consumers and 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 as global citizens that there are decisions that you can make that are better than other decisions and so you know we're not the cheapest um by any means but we're sustainable we're made from recycled paper or bamboo you have options and you know for, for in, in my and this is not because i work for them at all this is a, a pre working for them thought if you can make a good decision that costs a few more bucks but saves trees or you know gives people toilets and all that kind of stuff it's it's a good decision and and probably worth those few bucks so i, I know that's the way i look at it but i can't i can't speak broadly for the whole organization but in respect of say you know yourselves and being Cork and stuff it'll, it just makes you a better business it makes you think about the way you go about things in a way that potentially you might not have before and in time There'll be so many more people who resonate with the fact that you are that hopefully it holds you in good stead. Not to mention being
0: an attractive employer, which as we discussed earlier, you know, in what is a rapidly changing hiring landscape, it's imperative. I think regardless of your industry, your business growth stage, recruiting, retaining and improving productivity are the top of uh, any executive's mind as we speak. You know, competition for talent is super fierce. Uh, and is only increasing as businesses invest more into finding the right people for the roles. You know, this, compounded compounded with a couple of other issues, you know, firstly, we're experiencing a rare and total reassessment of what job purpose actually means, both from the lens of the hiring company and then the individual employee pursuing a role, who's then also scrutinizing the match with their own personal goals and vice versa with the company values for the business itself secondly the the disruption of uh to working patterns ways of working you know that's only increased demand for flexibility so even contract freelance and remote roles are are in high demand personally i believe this has just dialed up the importance of building both an employer brand and establishing some sort of culture if you've got any chance of becoming an attractive proposition for candidates and from a cfo perspective the question then becomes When future proof in the finance team, and actually all teams generally, right? How do you think about forecasting out your overall headcount? And from a perspective of where and when can you introduce automation to those more uh, repetitive, common people related tasks to pick up some of the overall strain as you scale? So, given everything we've covered today, Phil, uh, for any aspiring CFOs out there, or equally founders, as you're saying, right? and that are still running the finance function prior to bringing on board the, the first CFO, what would your advice be for them?
1: it's a good question. I, um, I mean, there's a few things really, that, um, and I guess I'm carving myself out a bit of a niche as someone who goes in as the first time CFO and takes the, the finance from the CEO so they can go and do CEO stuff and and I do CFO stuff. I think, look, I've had a really fortunate career I'm very aware of it and and very grateful for it. I think the thing that is that resonates with me most through my career is I've really lent on mentors to, to make me better. I've had really strong ones through Tabcorp, then News Corp. Then when I went into small startup, I found external mentors who would help guide me through decision-making things that I, I may may not have experienced or were new, were new to me. In in different ways, whether they be people, process, or systems. And 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 my my biggest thing, if you're gonna, if if I'm talking to financial controllers or directors or aspiring CFOs who want to come into startup and tech and all those kind of things, is don't kill yourself trying to do everything. Just do the things that really matter, that are going to make the business better, and advocate for for finance. It's very easy for finance, as we sort of spoke about at the start of this, to to just be transactional processes who make sure the business keeps running. We've got enough cash. We don't have to raise. We don't have to do this. We don't have to do that. But the rest of the business suffers for that. If you get a finance department that can really have an entrepreneurial mindset and really help the business make good decisions, it'll help the business exponentially to what it would if you're just making sure that the bank accounts reconcile and the bills are paid. And the people are paid, obviously. So that's that, that's been my biggest takeaway from from doing this three times in a row, or being in the infancy of my of my third time. It, it's look at what the business needs from you, and then prioritize that over look at what you think the business needs. What you'll find is is the rest will take care of itself. You'll never get everything done, and if you do get it done, you must have been there for either a really long time or be really well resourced. And you would know this from being a CEO. I mean, you've, I'm sure you've got a a thousand ideas in your notepad and you're probably going to get 25 done. And you talk about, you know, the luxury of having five minutes on a Friday to think about the things that you really like to be doing. That's no difference from stepping into into a role in finance in, in the startup world and, and looking at all the things that could be better and, and trying to work out which ones are actually going to make meaningful impact. And and then my last thing, and, and I can say this, and it's probably a little bit unfair to be to be honest, find a place where you love what you do. Like, I get out of bed every morning at Who Gives a Crap like I did at Tribe and and like I do at Virgin and love it. Like, it's awesome. It's motivating. I work hard. I love helping people and and helping the business and all those kind of things. Hopefully, Who Gives a Crap keeps me around for a long time because, you know, I'm just so passionate about what they're trying to do. But you only live once. And if you're going to do anything to earn a buck so you can go and live your life doing what you want to do, then, you know, try and find something that you love doing to earn that buck. That is the mic drop. (laughs) <laughs>
0: right there that is uh that's fantastic advice for us all need really to take away uh, and super inspiring just in terms of hearing your story so phil thank you so much for taking the time out and just talking through everything all the incredible things that you've done and the incredible journey that you guys are on i, I wish you all the best and i'm going to continue following everything you guys do and cheer you on on your mission to make sure that the sanitation for Everybody around the world by 2050, I can't wait to see how, how that journey plays out. And um, so yeah, and for anybody interested, what anybody want to read, well, two things. Anybody want to reach out to you specifically, first of all, what's the best way to get hold of you? Uh, you
1: can find me on LinkedIn, I'm there somewhere.
0: Perfect, um, so feel free. And then second of all, anybody listening um, who is keen to support uh, you guys more from the charitable side of things in terms of the organizations that you're supporting, What's the best way to to get behind that?
1: Um, probably, probably similar. I'm happy for anyone to get in touch with myself, and then I'll um, I'll pass them on to the right person, and so, so we can look at it from there. So let's do that. Thanks for asking those two questions. I appreciate it, and I've enjoyed it. It's been fun. It's been a little while coming, but we finally got there. We finally got there,
0: mate. Thank you so much. I look forward to welcoming you to Sunny hopefully sanitized manly (laughs) at some point in the very near future but yeah anyway catch up soon uh thank you to everybody for listening to today's pod all right cheers guys bye Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's go.